Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Joining us as he does every episode is the great Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, always good to see you. Hey, Brandon. I don't know how great I am, but uh, always good to be with you. Well, Bishop, today we are going to be talking about the favorite subject of ours, and that's Jesus Christ, the Lord. Um, But we're going to take a little different angle on it this time. We've talked about um, the Gospels. We've talked about Jesus' spiritual outlook on life. Today, though, we're going to be looking at the academic, scholarly study of Jesus. Over the last two or three hundred years, the study of Jesus has gone through various phases that have become known as the quests for the historical Jesus. Um, And before we get to each of those quests, there's a first quest, a second quest, a third quest. We're going to cover those in detail, but first maybe a more general question. Why does any of this matter? You know, with, with other religious founders like Buddha, there's no quest for the historical Buddha. There's not whole departments and thousands of volumes of books analyzing the meticulous details of the Buddha's life. So why Jesus? Why does it matter that we know what the historical Jesus was like and not just focus on his teachings? Yeah, because look at the creeds. The creeds of the great um, Christian churches aren't that interested in Jesus' teaching. You don't really have a word about his teaching, but they're very interested in him. The historicity of Jesus, that, that Jesus really walked the earth, and Jesus' own makeup as a person matters enormously for Christianity because we're an incarnational religion. So the one thing you can't do is what many have tried. A, a more modern example is Immanuel Kant, who said, you know, what really matters is that the Gospels present this archetype, this image or literary figure of the person perfectly pleasing to God. And as long as you got that, you got the essence of the gospel. Whether this figure really existed or not, finally, who cares? Well, see, the mainstream of the Christian tradition has always resisted. That's a Gnosticizing tendency as well. It's always resisted it because he matters. Now, because he matters so much, his teaching matters. So I pay attention especially to Jesus' teaching because of Jesus. You know, It doesn't work the other way. So, yes, the interest in the historical Jesus, to use that somewhat problematic term, and we can talk about that, um, but that's a legitimate interest of the Christian churches because of the structure of our, of our belief. Now, for the first roughly 18 centuries after Christ lived and died on this earth, most people took what the Gospels had to say about Jesus for granted. They thought it was reliable, they thought it was generally trustworthy, and so the portrait we find of Jesus in the Gospels was was just assumed to be true. But something major shifted in around the 18th century with the Enlightenment. You mentioned Immanuel Kant. Talk about what shifted there when suddenly there was a mass questioning of religion, dogma, revelation. How did that shape the way that people viewed Jesus? Yeah, and it's good. You've raised a really a complex set of questions there. I, I make a first clarification because I think people fall into the trap of thinking, oh, prior to the Enlightenment, prior to this great awakening, uh, people were just, you know, simple-minded fundamentalists. Well, I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. We know that. Look at, at the great tradition going back to people like Origen and Augustine and the ancient church coming up through the Middle Ages. You have very complex, non-literalistic strategies for reading the Bible. So think of the various senses of the scripture. Think of typological readings. Think of a deep symbolic sensibility. So the first clarification I make is is I want to resist the modern prejudice that, well, thank God for the 18th century, because prior to that we were just a bunch of Yahoo fundamentalists. Well, that's simply false. At the same time, you're right. Something did happen at the Enlightenment. So this 
critical spirit emerged. People began to ask uh, questions about the Gospels. Can we simply say what we have in the Gospels are sort of journalistic presentations of Jesus? That's exactly what happened simply as uh, narrated. And a lot of the uh, key players began to say, well, no, that's too simplistic. Now, they did so, especially these early figures, like 18th century figures, did so in a very aggressive way. What I mean is they tended to be very skeptical of the church, of the received theological tradition. And so rather aggressively, they began to throw off what they saw as theological accretions or impositions from the theological program. And they wanted to get back to a kind of historical core Now, you know, in itself, again, the quest for the historical Jesus, okay, but the way they were doing it in the early phase was aggressive and somewhat simple-minded, as though uh, you can find this pure, unadulterated historical portrait somehow hiding underneath all these levels of, of commentary. But in point of fact, any historical account, whether it's Plutarch or Herodotus or Thucydides, from the ancient world, whether it's an account of the Kennedy assassination. We know now so clearly that every historical account is always from a perspective, always with certain prejudices in place, always to some degree with an agenda in place. So part of the problem in that very early quest was this this phony or false presupposition that we could find a pure historical core. I I don't think there's anyone today that would think that's a, a reasonable thing to look for. So the Enlightenment sort of fed into what historians now describe as the first quest for Jesus, which lasted from roughly the late 18th century to the early 19th century. And as you said, a lot of what they were doing was throwing off the miraculous, throwing off the supernatural, reducing or deconstructing Jesus so that he's just sort of a religious zealot who's charged with insurrection. A lot of the first questers described the resurrection as simply Jesus' disciples stealing the body and then sort of imagining that Jesus had risen from the dead. Um, The goal, it seems, was to make Christianity more palatable to modern ears, modern European ears in particular. Talk about this desire. Well, and you're putting your finger there on one of the problems that I was alluding to. Namely, one of the presuppositions of the method was, well, if it's supernatural, it can't be historical. Well, then isn't that convenient? So once you suppose that, well, you're presuming your conclusion. So, sir, if you say the supernatural can't be historical, well, then anything supernatural, that didn't really happen. And so that's simply a a prejudice. And you're right, in line with the assumptions of that time, which are very much imminentist, this-worldly, skeptical of uh, a supernatural point of reference. Also now, Brandon, in line with that Kantian uh, influence. So I mentioned Kant saying, you know, the historicity of Jesus is less important. But what does matter for Kant is the moral content of the New Testament. So this great ethical teaching emerges. Well, you're going to see that imitated all throughout the 19th century. What it really comes down to, scholar after scholar will say, is the moral teaching of Jesus. And so miracles and the resurrection and incarnation and all this business you know, that's a nice sort of uh, decoration. But the heart of it is the moral teaching. Now, that takes different forms. It could be, um, you know, uh, to be a, a, a good person and to be dedicated to the poor and to your neighbor. Or it could take the form it took in someone like Albert Schweitzer, and you were alluding to that as well, to see Jesus as this great apocalyptic teacher, that he was teaching that uh, time and space were about to end, history was coming to this crashing climax, 
it would happen, he thought, deludedly, and that's to be fair, Albert Schweitzer thought it was a delusion on Jesus' part, it would happen through his cross. In fact, the, the cry of dereliction it was just that for Schweitzer. It was Jesus saying, God, why have you abandoned me? I, I was counting on you, but in fact, he's just been ground under by the wheel of history. You know, so in a way, that's where the first quest kind of peters out, because you say, well, then what are we left with? We're left with maybe a vague moral teacher or this kind of poor, deluded soul uh, who meant well and was an honest apocalypticist, but ended up being uh, uh, deluded. So the first quest, I think, peters out, uh, you know, after all those um, after all those conclusions. When I think of the first quest, I'm reminded of Thomas Jefferson and the creation of his famous Jefferson Bible, you know, where he takes a razor and he cuts out all the miraculous, all the supernatural, and what he's left with is this moral portrait of this nice teacher. That's a perfect example of it. And Jefferson, of course, is a a prime uh, Enlightenment figure. So Jefferson dies, what, 1826. Kant dies in the early 19th century. And so it's very much conditioned by that way of approaching it. And, you know, it does, and it's good you mentioned Jefferson because it does haunt at least one strain of the American uh, psyche when it comes to Jesus. There's a kind of, call it high uh, rationalistic liberalism, that would follow that path of of de-supernaturalizing the program and seeing Jesus as an ethical teacher. Now, what shifts, and we've already talked about it, is, well, what's trendy in your moral thinking? So 19th century, you got certain values. Early 20th century is apocalypticism. What's it now? Well, it's all, you know, inclusivism and welcoming and all that. So Jesus becomes now the moral teacher of of, uh, the welcoming society. It was Schweitzer himself who gave us the great image uh, as he's sort of mocking a lot of his uh, contemporaries. He said, well, what they did is they looked down the well of history and they saw reflected back to themselves their own face. So what happens very often in the this style of historical criticism is the critic imposes upon Jesus his or her own prejudices and so on. And you see, looking back at yourself, your own reflection. You and I have both been reading with great delight this new book by N.T. Wright and yeah. Michael Byrd, two biblical scholars, kind of an introduction to the New Testament. It's called The New Testament and Its World. It's thick. It's like a thousand pages, but yeah. it's a beautiful book. And in there, when Wright is talking about the quest for the historical Jesus, he has a similar line to Schweitzer. He says, as it turned out, this first quest for Jesus was a great place to construct a mirror of one's beliefs. It was a great way to do autobiography and call it the historical Jesus. Right. That That's the, the Jesus that idea. emerges right. is basically someone in our own image. But let's move on from there. You got the yeah. first quest, again, late 18th, early 19th centuries. Then there's this intermediary period that uh, N.T. Wright describes as the no-quest period, hmm. where it kind of simmers down a little bit. Um, this is maybe early to mid-20th century, spearheaded by uh, Christian scholars like Rudolf Boltmann and Karl Barth, both of whom we've talked about often mm-hmm. on this podcast. What was, what was their approach to the question of the historical Jesus? Well, you know, in some ways, Brandon, it's a kind of revival of the Kantian thing because they there was so much disagreement or the conclusions of the quest seemed so bland, they began to say, well, maybe that isn't the focus. Maybe there's something else the Gospels are doing. The Gospels are presenting, you know, the opportunity to make this life decision. That's a, a Boltmannian thing. Uh, Paul Tillich, you know, famously said, I don't want some of my historical friends to call me up someday and say, well, Paul, your Jesus never existed. And so he wanted to do a theology that was based upon a bracketing of that question so that he'd never get that phone call. Or if he did, he wouldn't have to worry about it. 
And so I would call them more archetypal uh, in their approach, that they, they set aside or bracket the historical question. Now, you can see right away the problem is the minute you do that, it's very easy to again start constructing Jesuses in your own image and likeness. Once history is bracketed, there's no check on your own kind of effervescent imaginative version of Christianity. History matters for Christians and precisely as a check on us because we have to be confronted by this strange figure of Jesus. Lest we just turn him into a... um, a version of ourselves, or a spokesperson for our own prejudices and hang-ups. It's around this period, this no-quest period with guys like Boltman and Bart, that we get this bifurcation between the Jesus of history and the Christ yeah. of faith. You'll often see people yeah. trying to put a wedge between those two different figures. Talk about that. Well, and remember very early on in our conversation when I used that phrase, you know, the historical Jesus or the Jesus of history, and I said, well, I don't really like that phrase, and that's precisely why, because it's often set up in contrast to the Christ of faith, as though Christ, who emerges in the doctrines of the church, in the art of the church, in the lives of the saints, is some foreign uh, imposition. It's some accretion added on. You know, here's something else, and the risk of sounding a bit polemical. There is something very Protestant in the instinct behind a lot of this, namely to scrape away what are seen as the barnacles on the side of the ship to get back to the original purity. Well, see, I'm a Newman man. I, I've always been, been uneasy with that sort of Protestant way of thinking about this, as though you need to, to scrape things away or knock things down to get back to the original. I'm a Newman man, which is to say, I think there's an organic development. So from Jesus himself, there grows forth this great tree of, of the Catholic tradition, Are these things uh, distorting accretions? No, they're developments from this historical core. So that's why, you know, the whole program in a way, and it's embodied in that sharp bifurcation between Jesus of history, Christ of faith, is is a Protestantizing uh, tendency that I don't like, and I think is not an accurate reflection of the way things really developed. Okay, so we have the first quest, and remember the goal was that of that was to sort of domesticate and de-supernaturalize Jesus. Then we have this sort of no-quest interregnum period where the question of the historicity of Jesus is sort of belittled. That's not really what we should focus on. We should focus on the Christ of faith. But then around the middle of the 20th century, the question starts picking up again, and we come to the second quest, or what's known as the new quest Uh, for the historical Jesus. Uh, This period has a strong emphasis on the historical critical method, which I want you to talk in depth about here in a moment. But on the Catholic side, this would feature scholars like Raymond E. Brown, Joseph Fitzmaier. Um, It flourished throughout the mid to late 20th centuries. Talk about this period of Catholic scholarship. Yeah, it's interesting. And and the person usually associated with the second or new quest is Ernst Käsemann, the uh, German Protestant thinker. And Kesemann writing in the 50s, so in Germany right after uh, Hitler, what are you seeing there but a deep concern and a really good one, that unless we are cautioned and limited by a real vivid sense of the history, of Jesus of history, we can very easily turn him into an ideology. And see, Kesemann saw that happening in the Germany of his own lifetime. So Jesus did indeed become a sort of uh, symbolic carrier of the Aryan Nazi philosophy. Well, why not if you bracket history completely? So Kesemann, I think, spurred on in a very good way 
by that experience of, of the way Jesus was distorted, said, no, no, we got to get back. Now, maybe not succumbing to all the limitations you know, that, that the first quest had, but we got to come back to it. There's much more we could say about it. But you mentioned, too, that the people I came to know when I was going through school, so I was a philosophy student in the late 70s, a seminary student in the early 80s. The men you just mentioned, uh, they were the editors of the Jerome Biblical Commentary, which was this massive, it was as big as N.T. Wright's book, this massive uh, text of biblical commentary and explication that every priest, believe me, in my generation, read at least part of it. We've all got it on the shelf. If you, you go to the, the uh, libraries of priests of a certain age, they all have the Jerome Biblical Commentary. And people like uh, uh, Roland Murphy and Joseph Fitzmaier, and especially Raymond E. Brown. Now, I had the privilege of, of uh, meeting Raymond E. Brown and hearing him a number of times. Um, and he was a master. Raymond E. Brown was a Sulpician priest, taught first in Baltimore, then he taught at Union Theological Seminary in New York, uh, ended up at the uh, seminary in San Francisco. I saw him several times, and Brown would show up without a note. So no text, no note. All he had was a very small um, Greek New Testament. And he would lecture in the most compelling way for an hour and a half, simply with the Greek New Testament in his hand. He was someone who had imbibed the, the scripture uh, massively. So in many ways, it was a great generation of Catholic scholarship. They were inspired indeed by Divino Afflante Spiritu, which was an encyclical by, by Pope Pius XII that opened the floodgates for the use of the historical critical method within Catholic biblical studies. Now, it doesn't fit like super precisely with our various quests, but I'd say a lot of the, the uh, intellectual work behind those quests, the Pope said, okay, Catholics may use these uh, various methods. What was the stated purpose of the historical critical method? And, and they're very clear about this, Brown especially. It was to recover as closely as we can the intention of the human author of a biblical text, whether it's the book of the prophet Isaiah, whether it's the Song of Songs, whether it's the Gospel of Matthew, the purpose is to say, okay, how can I determine as best I can what was in the mind of the human author of that text when he wrote this, uh, these words? Now, in accord with that, you look at a lot of things. For example, um, what they call form criticism. Well, that's an analysis of the various literary forms the text went through before it got to, let's say, St. Matthew. So you might say, sure, Matthew would have perhaps known an oral tradition. He would have known earlier written traditions. Likely, for example, Matthew worked with the Gospel of Mark and then with a, another couple of well-known sources. He had other particular sources. So what they call form geschichte, or the, the analysis of, of the the historical development of the literary forms. That was a big part of the tradition. Another feature, uh, I'll use these German terms because it all came up out of Germany, all these, so-called Redaktionsgeschichte, which means the, the history of the redaction or the editing of the text. So what was the theological uh, intention of the various editors that worked on a text as it came to fruition? And then finally, most importantly, what was in the mind of the redactor, we'll call him St. Matthew for want of a better term, what was in the mind of St. Matthew as he wrote the gospel? So what were his theological emphases? What was the community he was addressing? Um, then you've got forms of literary criticism. So what kind of literary genre and forms are being used throughout the gospel? 
et cetera, et cetera. So using all these methods, the historical critics are trying to discover what was in the mind of the human author as he wrote the text. Now, my generation, that's what we, that's what we took in. Biblical study largely meant that. We've talked about this before. Uh, did we read the church fathers on the Bible? No. It was like, why, if you're a scientist, why would you bother reading like, you know, uh, uh, Ptolemy or something on, on the movement of the planets? I mean, you wouldn't read some ancient, outdated stuff. Uh, we didn't read the church fathers. We didn't read the medievals. Uh, Thomas Aquinas or, or Bernard of Clairvaux uh, on the Bible? No. We read the historical critical authors from the 19... 50s, 60s, and 70s, I would say. Um, you're guessing, I'm sure, even as I respect that method, and I do. I do. I don't think we ever go back behind it as though it's, it's a waste of time. But you're probably picking up that there are limitations built into it. Is We ended up with a somewhat narrow perception of the Bible. I think one hesitation that a lot of people today have with the historical critical method is it seems like a cold form of dissection. With yeah. You have like an insect pinned to the board and you're kind of right. picking it apart slowly but surely. It kind of flourished and reached its apex in the 1980s with the so-called Jesus Seminar. Yeah. So this is a group of scholars who go through the Bible in a group, in a symposium, and do precisely this. Every word, every event of Jesus, they analyze and say, is this true? Did it really happen historically or did it not? And they took little votes on which happened and, and which didn't. You've written before about the Jesus yeah. Seminar. I'm assuming you think that that was not the right approach to analyzing the Bible. No, it was god-awful. And, you know, Brandon, it happens a lot, though, in the history of, of thought. So I'm a great devotee of Thomas Aquinas, as you know, in the high Middle Ages, this, this flourishing of Catholic intellectualism. But did Thomism, in the course of several centuries, devolve to some degree into a sort of hyper-rationalistic non-scriptural, more logic-chopping approach. Yeah, it's precisely the sort of manualist Thomism that a lot of people, like Balthazar and many others, and myself, would be critical of. It, my point there is it happens with almost any method. Is a method starts out, and yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's helpful. And then some great master uh, uh, employs the method. And like, wow, that's really effective. Now, in my mind, someone like Raymond E. Brown, I think, used the historical critical method especially well. But then what happens, and it happened in short order here, is it can devolve into something really weird and fussy and overstated and so on. Because I would never equate the Jesus Seminar with Raymond E. Brown. I mean, Raymond E. Brown was a man of, of deep faith and understood the riches of the Catholic tradition. The Jesus Seminar is, to my mind, almost a, a caricature of the historical critical method. All right, so let's keep moving and bring us up basically to where we are now. We've talked about the first quest, the, the no quest period, and then we just got finished talking about the second quest. Beginning around the 1970s or 80s, we see the development of the third quest for the historical Jesus. This was led by scholars such as Ben Meyer, E.P. Sanders, and John Meyer, all of whom argued that to understand Jesus appropriately, we need to read him in light of his first century Judaism. We need to read him against his complex Jewish background. Why is this the right way to understand Jesus? Well, I'll say something first. Uh, I mentioned some of the broad principles of historical critique, but I'll get more specific. When they were looking to determine, now, did this really happen or not, they would employ a number of criteria. And I'll just give you a couple. One is the principle of embarrassment. And that means if something like was probably really embarrassing to the early church, 
but yet it's there in the gospel, well, heck, that probably really happened because unless they had really compelling historical evidence, they probably would have left that out. Prime example, Jesus' baptism by John. So you're trying to present you know, the, the sinless Messiah of Israel, but his first public move is to seek a baptism of repentance? I mean, that would seem to be embarrassing to the early church, but yet all four Gospels have it. Um, second one is multiple attestation. So is something attested to in multiple Gospels or only in one? But there's a third one that's, that's right now to your point, which is the principle of discontinuity. So if Jesus is saying something that's totally in continuity with what you'd expect a first century Jewish teacher to say, people thought, well, okay, that might not be historical because that's like just something that you know, they'd come up with naturally. If Jesus said something that was really egregious, that was really in discontinuity with his Jewish background, oh, that probably really happened because it's so strange. Unless they had compelling historical evidence, they would have left that out, right? Okay. Now we could say much more about those criteria. But a lot of the third quest, it seems to me, it's uneasy with Formgeschichte. That's another issue. But it's very uneasy with this point. Because what it produced, almost necessarily, you see it, read John Dominic Crossland for a prime example. It produces a weirdly non-Jewish Jesus. So he's a stoic, wandering philosopher. What? He's, he's a first century Jewish rabbi. You know. So the, the attempt now to ground him in his richly Jewish background. That's the work of E.P. Sanders, N.T. Wright. I would say on the Catholic side, someone like our friend Brand Petrie uh, are doing that sort of work. And the Jesus that emerges from that, I would say, is this luminous figure because he, he makes so much sense when read against his properly Jewish background. So that is a big part of the third quest approach. According to N.T. Wright's telling of this story, we're kind of reaching the end of the third quest. It's sort of petering out, and we're wondering where do we go to next. But I wanted to ask you, you described coming of age during the second quest, and now you embrace enthusiastically this third quest. When did that shift occur for you? I can almost name it precisely. I was at Notre Dame as a scholar in residence, 2002. I was on sabbatical, and I was teaching a course, and I was writing what eventually became my book, The Priority of Christ. I was starting to write that in 2002. And during that period, I don't know why, I was reading a, a review in a theological journal of this book by this fellow N.T. Wright, whom I'd never heard of at that point. And the, the uh, review was very critical of Wright. But as he's describing the book, I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know this guy, but, and, and this reviewer doesn't like him. But, but that book sounds interesting. So that night or the next day, maybe, I'm over at the uh, Notre Dame bookstore. Uh, it's changed a bit now. It was better in those days as a really fine theological bookstore. And I went to the scripture section and I found this whole shelf of N.T. Wright. And I bought this big fat volume, uh, Jesus and the Victory of God. And I just, I read it with, with great passion. I mean, he's a wonderful writer, very profound, uh, very richly uh, academic, and at the same time affirming of the great mainstream of the, of the Christian theological tradition around Jesus. So anyway, I found his book so compelling that I began to read a lot of him, and then he led me to the other figures we just mentioned. And that was a, not, I'm not a biblical scholar, I'm a, I'm a systematician, but I, I found myself really drawn into that world. So 2002, it started for me.
Well, I know for listeners who want to go deeper on these quests for the historical Jesus, Bishop Barron and I would both commend the work of N.T. Wright, especially this new introduction to the New Testament he just published. It's titled The New Testament and Its World. But Bishop, I wanted to close by commending another biblical scholar we can hardly ignore on this question, and that's Joseph Ratzinger, a.k.a. Yeah. Pope Benedict XVI. He wrote in the early or the mid-2000s a, a trilogy of books on Jesus of Nazareth, which in my mind perfectly embody the, the approach, the, the, um, the methodology for analyzing questions of historicity around Jesus, because he takes the best of the historical critical method, but he also brings in the fathers. He also brings in faith. He doesn't discount the supernatural. Talk about those books and his project in general. Well, I'll go back behind those books. I know we're running uh, short on time, but go back to the year 1988. And Josef Ratzinger, uh, head of the Doctrine of the Faith congregation at the time, is invited to New York to be part of a symposium sponsored by Richard John Newhouse, the founder of First Things. But before Newhouse was a Catholic, he's still a, a Lutheran at this point. And he invites Ratzinger to give a paper in a very high level group, including Raymond E. Brown was there, talking about the historical critical method and its limitations. Ratzinger writes a paper that it was absolutely seminal, um, widely criticized at the time. I remember the reaction to it being very dismissive. But what he was saying was, yes to much of what's really great in the historical critical method and many things that we've just talked about, but at the same time emphasizing how, how limiting the approach can be and the bracketing of the theological, the bracketing of the patristic, the bracketing of the great medieval four senses tradition, and all of that, that it should be supplemented by this more richly theological approach. Well, go back and read that essay of Ratzinger. It's been published now many times. Um, I think that set the tone in many ways for, if you want, the Catholic version of the, of the new isn't so much the quest for the historical Jesus, but a new moment in Catholic biblical scholarship, I think, was, um, was prompted by that. And then you're right. Ratzinger, now become Pope Benedict, says, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what I talked about abstractly in 1988, and hence the three volumes of his Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so that's a very interesting place to look if you want to see the trajectory of this whole uh, tradition. Mm -hmm.